0: Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Lucas Rappel, and today I'll be speaking with Eugenia Lean. Eugenia is a professor of history as well as East Asian languages and cultures at Columbia University, and she has just published a new book on science and capitalism during the early 20th century entitled Vernacular Industrialism in China Local Innovation and Translated Technologies in the Making of a Cosmetics Empire. Framed as a biography of the maverick entrepreneur Chen jie shen this book provides what Lean provocatively describes as a global microhistory of vernacular industrialism, that is, the pursuit of industry and science outside of conventional venues. This kind of knowledge work, as Lean calls it, often involves tinkering with existing manufacturing practices and creatively appropriating industrial know-how from abroad in an effort to produce innovative new products that could be marketed as authentically Chinese. In this way, vernacular industrialists like Chen Jishen helped to presage the sorts of practices that fueled China's economic ascent into the 21st century. Rather than rehash conventional narratives that depict early 20th century China as a moribund society defeated by decades of Western imperialism, or as a rogue state with a habit of infringing on the moral economy of global capitalism by routinely stealing the intellectual property of more technologically advanced nations, instead, Lean offers a refreshing account that puts Chinese culture and vernacular knowledge production at the center of industrial change. This is a wonderful book. Aside from its innovative argument and refreshing historiographical frame, it's beautifully written and deeply researched. I was especially charmed by the main character around which Lin has decided to organize her narrative, Chen Diexian. Chen was a truly beguiling, multifaceted human being. Besides building an industrial empire that specialized in his famous butterfly brand of cosmetics, Chen also engaged in the field of cultural production, editing numerous journals and magazines. In addition, he was a widely read poet and author of what Lin describes as sappy romance novels, melodramatic love stories that were popularly known as Mandarin, ducks, and butterfly fictions. Moreover, Lean shows how Chen Ji-Shen employed many of the same practices in both his literary and industrial pursuits, practices that revolved around the creative appropriation and playful tinkering with existing formula to create something new. In other words, Lean makes it easy for readers to fall under Chen Ji-Shen's spell, much as they did while reading his sappy romances over a century ago. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Welcome, Eugenia, to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society.
1: Thank you for having me, Lucas.
0: Yeah, of course. So congratulations on the quite recent, I think, publication of Vernacular Industrialism in China. It's a really wonderful book. And I wanted to start by asking you about its main character. So the book is structured as a bit of a biography, and it centers on this Really interesting, multifaceted figure, Chen Jieshen. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about who he was, uh, what time he lived in, and why you became so interested in him.
1: Yeah, Chen Jieshen. Yeah, was is a fascinating figure. He is the main uh, subject of my book. Uh, he lived uh, in the uh, late Qing period, uh, late twentieth uh, sorry late nineteenth century into. Uh, the early 20th century in China, so during the turn of the 20th century. Uh, And uh, he was uh, a maverick figure in multiple ways. Um, He was an entrepreneur uh, who uh, made money both in the world of letters and in the world of industry and commerce. Uh, So, for example, he's most well-known as a romance novelist. He wrote these very, very sappy, uh, melodramatic, Uh, novels that were serialized in uh, urban newspapers at the time. So he was a pen for hire. but He was also prolific as an editor and a translator. Uh, He wrote plays, poems, uh, and so he was a multifaceted uh, cultural figure. But in addition to uh, his accomplishments in the world of letters, he was also uh, emerged as a um, man of, of commerce and industry. He actually started off as an amateur tinkerer, who dabbled in chemistry, he turned his uh, home studio into a chemical lab. Uh, And uh, as a result of a lot of that uh, tinkering, uh, he started to develop products uh, for commercial manufacturing and he eventually became uh, a captain of industry. He founded uh, a company known as the Households, the Association for, for, uh, sorry, the Association for Household Industries, uh, which was a cosmetics company. Uh, And his most famous product was this uh, tooth powder that you could apply to your face as face powder as well. It was known as a butterfly brand tooth powder. Um, And one of the reasons why I find him so incredibly fascinating was that he represented a whole generation of um, educated men and women who lived during a period when China uh, was facing decline politically. This was a period when the Qing Empire collapsed uh and in 1911 a new republic was founded the new republic however was very very weak uh and it was seen as quite transitional uh, a failed experiment in republicanism uh while politics were uh was quite fraught um the uh economic realm in china was uh, actually developing and this was in part because of new treaty ports that were emerging uh during this period uh when uh, western powers imperialist powers and japan were all trying to um, sort of develop uh their industries in china and so chinese men and women actually had newfound opportunities in these treaty ports and he was one of these people who who started to take advantage of those opportunities uh even as uh, china was facing uh political challenges so so the the the, as an individual he he was quite prolific he was prolific both in in writing and in making things but um I really see him as representative of an entire generation that took advantage of um, the, this 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 period and uh why I find him interesting is that he lets us explore a concept that I call vernacular industrialism uh, which is uh you know the core of uh, Concept or idea that I I am pursuing in this in this book, uh, and it's obviously also uh, front and center of, in my title.
0: Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by this phrase, vernacular industrialism?
1: Yeah, so vernacular industrialism, uh, I use this term to kind of describe uh, some of some of Chen Diexian's activities uh, in the industrial world um, and uh, precisely because he was an unexpected participant in in the making of Chinese industry. Uh, I wanted to capture uh, the array of activities that he engaged in, uh, in order to uh, manufacture things. Um, And uh, traditionally, uh, sort of figures like Chen, uh, who are known for their uh, lettered work, have been dismissed by historians as being uh, examples of um, sort of the literatus class in China that was unable to engage in science and commerce. Uh, but with Qin's story, I found that this fellow who uh, was classically educated, who wrote poetry, who fit all of the kind of traditional um, ways of being a, an elite man, he was actually really able uh, to navigate this transitional period and move from uh, this period where sort of textual work was privileged to. The modern period where uh, industrial commercial work uh, became increasingly available to uh, men and women like him. Um, and as he navigated this period, he, you know, sort of engaged in activities that one would not expect a typical industrialist to engage in, right? So some of this might be some of the um, sort of writings that he did. Uh, about industry. He published a tremendous amount of how-to articles. Uh, he uh, circulated um, recipes that he had translated abroad for uh, fellow readers to, uh, to peruse and actually draw information and knowledge from. Um, he dabbled and tinkered, uh, not in any kind of formal setting. He oftentimes did this in his, uh, you know, among his lettered uh, peers uh, for fun. Um, but I wanted to take those kinds of uh, activities, which uh, people in the past have often dismissed as frivolous, uh, seriously, and think about how these activities were actually part and parcel of Qin's uh, endeavors that became the basis of his um, industrial uh, activities. And so, so the, vernacular, the notion of vernacular industrialism is to kind of capture uh, sort of the ad hoc nature of some of the uh, practices, manufacturing practices that he engaged in. Uh, another aspect about vernacular that I really like is that uh, it captures the nativist inclination of Qin as an individual. He was eventually a leader of something known as a national products movement, which was a uh, buy and manufacture Chinese movement that emerged during this period of uh, when China was, was faced with economic imperialism. And uh, in this political and economic context, uh, nativist industry was deemed extremely important for China to survive. Uh, and uh, entrepreneurial um, individuals like Chen and other merchants uh, sort of mobilized a native products movement, this native products movement, in order to promote um, Chinese industry. Uh, so uh, what I like about this vernacular industrialism is that Chen uh, really mobilized practices that we, from a modern perspective, might consider quite rogue or unacceptable as, as, as aspects of formal industry, including kind of copying foreign, foreign technology, um, you know, uh, kind of um, uh, spending time um, sort of writing about uh, foreign technology and sharing brand recipes to a large readership. Right? This was actually very, very crucial fortune to spread knowledge, to spread technological knowledge, which he actually called common knowledge in Chinese, um, and uh, he thought that this was actually very virtuous. This was hardly unethical. This was hardly not devious. This was a period when industrial property rights was not established globally, much less in China. And these were uh, practices that he deemed actually quite central to building a nativist uh, uh, chinese industry so so in, uh, local industry and, and and this is something that he very much emphasized in 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 his own personal like cultivation of his reputation and the brand of his um, for his uh, cosmetics as well so so the vernacular uh, this notion of vernacular very much captures that kind of local uh, nativist um, sort of uh, element of Chin's practices.
0: That's so fascinating. I mean, he sounds like this, tell me if I'm wrong, but he sounds like this really kind of flexible, adaptable individual. You describe him as a transitional figure. So both a kind of uh, literary person who's composing uh, works of lit- like fiction, but also these recipes, but then also making things, Uh, But then also transitioning between it sounds like dealing with these foreign imperialists, but then also creating national products for uh, kind of Chinese marketplace. So really sort of playing all sides of every single angle at the same time. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And, you know, it was really possible this time because I think um, China, as I said, was transitioning from uh, an imperial system which collapses in 1911. To a new republic. And part of this transition meant that kind of social occupation, formal forms of knowledge, um, what it meant to be elite man, what it meant to be a professional expertise, all of these things were up in the air. Um, So there was a lot of uh, uh, sort of porousness between um, sort of different fields that we within from a sort of a contemporary perspective we might see as quite different. So the production of literature. Uh, might preclude, for example, somebody today uh, to be a scientist, right, Uh, whose formal occupation or profession might be a scientist. But during this period in the early 20th century, those kind of occupational divisions didn't exist, and it was quite liberating. And that was sort of what characterized um, this generation who were uh, very well educated, uh, and they were able to – one thing that I was very interested in is actually how they were able to leverage some of their literary skills – Uh, quite uh, into success in the commercial world. So to give you a concrete example, what Chen was able to do was he was able to uh, take the proceeds that he used from selling his um, very uh, sappy, melodramatic romance novels and literally uh, start developing um, his cosmetic goods um, and founded his company. Um, But in more abstract ways too, I'm actually very interested in not just the literal sort of financial um, you know, uh, sort of proceeds that he was able to use from, from his literary work to, to build his commercial work. But the skills that he uh, developed as a man of letters, including uh, the act of translation, for example, was very, very crucial for his success in the commercial world. Um, so he was an avid translator. He actually opened a translation bureau and he translated all kinds of things, um, detective fiction. He was an, uh, one of the key translators of Sherlock Holmes. Into Chinese, uh, but he translated other things, uh, legal doc, uh, sort of, uh, sort of, yeah, legal tracks. He uh, recipes, uh, manufacturing recipes, uh, and these recipes were very, very crucial for him uh, to sh- uh, both for his own the development of his own product, but also for him to share with uh, other ma- would be manufacturers. And that's what he did. He would translate these recipes and then uh compiled them in how-to columns, and then he would share them widely with uh, this new emerging urban readership. Um, sorry, you're, you're about to say something? I was just wondering, yeah. I mean,
0: another maybe in some ways quite different aspect to the story. Is there yeah. an interesting gender component? I mean, it's, I was just struck by the yeah. fact that he was both an author of romance. You described them as sappy romance novels. <laughs> But then also a, a producer of cosmetics. So was his, did he understand his market to be primarily, did he understand his market to be gendered?
1: So it was gendered in an interesting sort of way. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the point, the romance novels were actually read, uh, both by men and women. Uh, and yeah, cosmetics were, were, uh, targeted primarily. Most of the consumers were women. Uh, he was also a, um, uh, a famous journal editor. And one of the journals that he edited was known as The Women's World, uh, a women's magazine, um, uh, a genre that was very popular at the time. Uh, it was a new genre. Uh, it was a genre that uh, was meant to showcase both um, uh, uh, sort of literary forms that women would read, but also uh, new forms of knowledge. So one of the columns that he Uh, Featured in this women's uh, women's world magazine was how to manufacture cosmetics at home, and it was targeting uh, genteel women who had the leisure time to turn their homes into modern chemical chemistry labs. And he gave them very very concrete tips on how to make cosmetics uh, uh, in their newfound uh, chemical um, home chemistry labs. Um, One of the arguments I make, however, is that while uh, the of the woman is being used, and he is indeed trying to target a a female readership, men as well read these women's magazines. Um, And so the gender kind of plays, it wasn't, it was hardly exclusive. And it was in part because the, uh, the woman's voice was seen as a very powerful voice at the time to convey new forms of knowledge. Um, and it was, so men and women were reading these magazines and consuming this information quite avidly. So one of the arguments I actually make is that uh, would-be manufacturers, including men, uh, read these uh, recipes and oftentimes applied them quite literally, uh, both in their homes, but also outside.
0: Yeah, amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you about another Phrase or set of words that comes up in the book over and over again. So, we've been talking about vernacular industrialism, but you also describe Chen as a tinkerer. And then you also use this really interesting, evocative phrase of knowledge work. So, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about both the kind of tinkering aspect of both his literary production, but also the cosmetics empire that he built, and then what it means to describe all of these different kinds of practices as knowledge work.
1: Okay, yeah, one of the things that I'm very interested in is this notion of tinkering, and I use this in multiple ways. Um, tinkering, uh, so Chen Deixian, again, uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, very uh, adept both in, in, in terms of his textual work at, at uh, not necessarily creating something new. A lot of his uh, literary production was sort of adapting or tinkering pre-existing formulas. So one of his most famous novels that kind of sold like hotcakes in the emerging Shanghai print market at the the time was basically a ripoff, uh, an adaptation of one of China's most popular um, um, uh, novels from the late imperial period. It's known as The Dream of the Red Chamber. And he basically adapts that novel in order to write his new romance novels. Uh, and the adaptation requires kind of a reworking of a formula. So he basically tinkers with an existing successful formula. I see him doing that act of tinkering in the material world as well, right? So he's translating these recipes from abroad. Uh, one example is his uh, desire to make his most iconic product, this this tooth powder, which can also function as face powder. Uh, and as he does with many of his other products, he basically gets a recipe from abroad. Often, sometimes it's a branded recipe, it's a brand recipe, right? It's a recipe from a famous of a famous commodity, and then he translates it into Chinese, takes that recipe, and then adapts it to the uh, local environment, both in the sense of kind of trying to find local ingredients uh, and. For the tooth powder, he found uh, initially that uh, calcium carbonate was very expensive at that time to to, to procure uh, in China uh, because it was an imported item. And so he wanted to locally source it. Uh, Calcium carbonate was often was a very popular uh, ingredient for cosmetic goods. Uh, And so uh, as the story goes, he basically um, was writing poetry with a friend of his on the Ningbo, uh, the sort of eastern seaboard of China, and he noticed that the seashore was covered with cuttlefish bones, <laughs> and realized that that's a great source of calcium carbonate. Uh, and so he starts to kind of tinker with that. He ultimately fails; it's it's too labor intensive to really make a tremendous amount of calcium calcium carbonate from the the uh, Cuttlefish, and then, so he uses other chemical means to produce magnesium carbonate. But the story is quite um, interesting because it, it, it showcases uh, a uh, sort of the process of manufacturing that he adopts for many objects, not just for his tooth powder. Uh, he does this for the fire extinguisher, which is another object that he's very interested in and he seeks to manufacture. He does this for an offset printing press that he does, where he reverse engineers and basically copies. Uh, a French version, uh, and then tinkers with it and finds a local um, sort of local materials to 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 make and adjust and, and basically improve this this notion of improvement is actually very very crucial uh, in his uh, his treating treatises and writings about how to manufacture things, um, and so so the, the the notion of tinkering is meant to kind of capture uh, how he approaches his innovation. Um, and I use this notion of tinkering because I find it very, very powerful within the historiographical context of understanding industrial development. Uh, and I use it uh, in juxtaposition to or in contrast to kind of this previous notion of Macro invention, which is very central to sort of your conventional narrative of the industrial revolution, right? And the scientific revolution, why progress was made and why modernity was achieved uniquely in the West because of macro inventions. I mean, I'm being a little bit crude, but that, that mm-hmm. narrative uh, actually kind of continues to persist. Uh, And instead of seeing,
0: or the printing press, or right,
1: exactly, exactly, Um, and uh, and certainly others have looked uh, at uh, different ways of thinking of that narrative. George Basala is an early uh, uh, scholar who looks uh, less at these kind of radical changes in industrial and scientific development, but instead looks at incremental evolutionary change. Uh, So I'm certainly inspired by that kind of work. Um, that wants to look at sort of these these sort of micro-evolutionary um, incremental modification uh, that is still the basis of potential innovation. Um, and Chen Dixian is a very powerful, uh, quirky figure that allows us to kind of illuminate how the Chinese were doing that uh, in the early 20th century, and hence allows us to kind of rethink these larger narratives of China being only a copycat nation, uh, kind of always behind the West in in its ability to industrialize. I really want to challenge those narratives.
0: Yeah, and of course, for historians of science, that sort of that older view has been so foundational. I mean, even if you think yeah. about like Thomas Kuhn yeah. and the kind of philosophical views about the structure of scientific revolutions and all that, this is uh, really kind of ingrained almost in the DNA of our discipline. So it's a welcome challenge, Eugenia. <laughs> yeah,
1: and it continues, and it continues to be made with. Um, Those of us who are kind of also interested in kind of the global history of science, uh, you included, right? I mean, kind of thinking about uh, not so much kind of a comparative analysis, which still lurks in some of these kind of world history approaches towards you know science and industry, but instead to kind of think about the circulation of uh, goods, ideas, the exchange of information uh, that go into processes of of you know innovation and 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 you know, development.
0: Yeah. I mean, certainly that seems to have been, well, actually let's talk about that a little bit. So okay. this book very much is a, at least as I read it, is a kind of intervention in the global history of science, but it does all sorts of things in a really interesting way. So there's a, a couple of things I'd like to talk about. One of them is that it makes this intervention in the global history of science, but from a very local perspective, you call it a global microhistory. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by global micro, micro history and then what prompted your decision to write a kind of global history of science and cha- capitalism focusing on an individual person, a kind of very specific story, but an individual.
1: So, you know, it's funny. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of trained as a microhistorian. I was at UCLA uh, in the 90s when Carlo Ginsberg uh, wrote uh, The Cheese and the Worms, right? This is, is the iconic pioneering kind of cultural history, microhistory, right, where you look at an individual in order to look at much larger structural uh, uh, issues or historiographical issues. Uh, so I'm al- I've always been very, very comfortable with microhistory. My first book also looked at an individual case, an individual woman who assassinated a warlord, and I used that individual microhistorical case to look at larger developments in uh, the rise of an urban public in China and to think about uh, political participation in, in modern China. And I'm doing very a very similar thing with Chen Diexian, uh, uh, who um, is a very powerful figure precisely because he's so quirky and strange, but to talk, talk about a much larger issue about industrialism and indeed to kind of link it to uh, global issues of industrialization. So Chen, Chen obviously is one individual. Uh, that I then link to a cohort of of men and women who navigate this transitional period in China. But I don't want to think about just China. I want to raise questions about Chinese industrialization as being seen through Chen within a larger global context. Um, And indeed, it's partially in part because the field itself has, has now turned to the global history of science and to global history in general. Uh, you know, in many ways, this is a very unlikely kind of approach that might seem outdated. Um, people like big history now. They like long durée stuff, you know, environmental history that is, you know, you know, covers a huge swath of time. So in many ways, my um, intervention is a very odd one. Um, but I want to actually insist on the power of biography, which is actually a traditional genre in histor- historical writing. Uh, and it's a, it's it's powerful uh, or it's a traditional genre precisely because of the kind of compelling storytelling narrative of an individual and I think that's something we should still kind of hold on to and it's very valuable um, but this is obviously not a traditional biography, right It's not a hagiographical account. it's not a celebration of the individual, it's not a great man's story um instead it's it's trying to uh, sort of situate this individual within much larger trends that um, characterized China, but was not specific to China. And in that sense, I do want to see it as a, a global history. And, and in the introduction, for example, um, I liken him to uh, a fellow who you might, as an American, Americanist, you might be familiar with, Hugh Gernsback, right? Who is this, uh, uh, he was a Lithuanian who came to America and was a science fiction writer. And he was also a editor of of, uh, radio technology journals. And he catered to a readership of uh, radio tinkerers. Uh, And I sort of do a comparison between the two of them in the introduction, uh, not so much to engage in a comparative analysis to compare U.S. development versus Chinese development, but to actually see them as emblematic of a larger global phenomenon uh which is namely that the production the mass production of words that was possible during this time was actually very integrally related to technical technological development uh that was occurring within uh a period where mass industry was evolving and that was a global phenomenon the reason why i find hugo grinzbach so fascinating and why it was worthwhile for me to kind of uh look at hugo Grinsbeck uh, alongside uh, Chen Diexian was not so much that I wanted to engage in a comparison. I wasn't interested in saying, oh, well, America was at this point and we can see uh, how it was uh, developing through Hugo Grunzbeck uh, versus what was happening in China. And rather, what I wanted to do was sort of see the two individuals who are so similar uh, in the sense that they were both editors of uh, journals that were promoting tinkering and technological um, engagement by, uh, on the part of their readers. Uh, and uh, they themselves were both amateur uh, tinkerers. Uh, and they were also very dedicated, both of them, to sort of transmitting knowledge about uh, new forms of technology through uh, the uh, modern forms of media. And I actually see them both as emblematic of a, uh, of a common global, like a, a moment that spanned the world, that, that went from the U.S., to China. And that moment is a period where industrialization allowed for the mechanical reproduction of both words and things. Uh, and this was something that uh, I was very interested in is the relationship between kind of the new forms of knowledge work that were mo- emerging globally and the new forms of material work uh, in industry uh, that was also uh, worldwide. Uh, so in that sense, the individuals, uh, both Gernsback and Chen Diexian allow us to kind of look at a global story.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. One thing that I really liked about your analysis is that, as you know, and we've talked about, you know, offline many times, much of the recent enthusiasm, certainly among global historians of science for writing a kind of global history of science, has revolved or been written through the idiom and metaphor of circulation. So looking at how ideas circulate, how new inventions circulate, new discoveries, quote unquote, circulate. Uh, And looking at circulation, so rather than looking at a specific site of knowledge production, looking at the circulation of knowledge and claiming that circulation is constitutive of knowledge production. Anyway, one thing I really liked about your book is that I'm not sure if you fully intended to do this, but I read you to be sort of shifting the emphasis from circulation to copying, which I love for all sorts of reasons. But one reason is that it kind of materializes the process, right? So as you were just talking about, when you're making uh, radio broadcasts, but even more so in print publications. When Chen Jishen was uh, editing journals or producing sappy romance novels, he was making many, many copies of the same text, but then also, of course, copying other texts and tinkering with them and changing them. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the importance of copying in your understanding of kind of global history, history of knowledge, and then also sort of talk about the... um, I'm trying to think about how to put this, but the kind of tension between copying and authenticity, authentication. So that it was really important for Chen Jishen to both make it to circulate his work in many copies, so to make many cosmetics, many copies of his novels, mm-hmm. but then also to promote them as being authentically Chinese. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. Um, so, so you, you, in your question, linked circulation to. Copying And how I'm kind of making, uh, my focus is actually more on copying than than on circulation. Um, But they're also related, right? And so my choice of the word copying, or my choice of the theme copying is pretty important insofar as I am very interested in the global circulation of knowledge. But that knowledge as it circulates and transmits, it's not always just direct transmission, right? It's not, and this is, again, kind of taking challenging uh, previous understandings of how science circulated globally. Uh, The traditional kind of narrative is that, you know, science originated in in Europe and it just was transmitted to the rest of the world, right? So this kind of direct transmission um, is what I want to kind of complicate through the practice of Copying And again, a lot of scholars have already sort of looked uh, very innovatively at uh, how knowledge is transmitted and that it's hardly just direct transmission, but there's always adaptation. Um, My angle is from the practice of copying, uh, because Chen Xian is actually a big advocate, as I mentioned, of of copying, of of emulating, of remaking foreign technologies in order to innovate domestically. Um, And this is a form of import substitution. Um, and, uh, this was also a challenge to the emerging IP, uh, the industrial property regime that was emerging globally that wanted to focus instead on original creation, right? Um, but for Chen, copying was actually very, very important, uh, in order to build nativist industry and the processes by which copying takes place is what I look at very carefully, um, through his practices of tinkering, right? It was, it was oftentimes, uh, translation would then of a foreign technology would then uh, lead to his adaptation of that particular manufacturing process, which is oftentimes something he had to do. I mean, China was, uh, as I said, very weak, state sponsorship of industry building was nascent, Uh, ingredients were simply not to be had. So copying was just necessary. And then an adaptation of those copied formulas was absolutely necessary. And as he copied, he found that he innovated, he improved, he claimed that he improved. And part of that was um, arguably there was improvement or it was adaptation that fit the local conditions. Uh, Some of that was also marketing. Um, It was a means for him to authenticate the uniqueness of his product right and this is something that is uh necessary in modern capitalism um this is uh when when goods are mass produced goods especially like cosmetics right where you as the buyer you don't really sort of see the ingredients you don't see how how uh you know lipstick uh, you know in this case is necessarily better than lipstick um you know in, th- in this other case rather you depend upon the brand the the, the reputation of the brand that can be established through advertisements, uh, through trademark uh, usage, and so on and so forth. Um, and so Chen Jixian was a avid marketer, and he sought to authenticate his good uh, in the sea of commercial goods, uh, in this sort of new urban landscape in China, which was uh, characterized by all sorts of uh, 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 commodities, some uh, counterfeit, some copied, some flawed. And there was a lot of anxiety in China at the time. And this new marketplace was one that was bewildering. And and what Chen wanted to do was uh, sort of provide the consumers, his readers, uh, buyers of his goods, uh, with um, guidance on how to navigate this really unruly marketplace. Uh, And he did so in multiple ways. He did so through his how-to writings. Some of these how-to writings, while they shared recipes on how to manufacture soap, uh, they also kind of gave information and guidance uh, to the consumer about how to navigate or how to recognize good quality soap. Um, He was a marketer in his, uh, a a literal marketer. His advertising campaigns were very, very savvy. Um, His uh, butterfly brand uh, cosmetics uh, is sort of uh, you know sort of a, a master class on how to brand an item uh, he riffed off of his reputation as a romance novelist um, the novels that he wrote were known as uh, Mandarin duck and butterfly fiction uh, these were the butterfly was a very popular trope in uh, that was supposed to represent and symbolize love uh, and uh, it was uh, also the name of his um, you know, cosmetics. Um, it also happened to be his personal name. It, it, well, a, a name that he chose uh, Die Xian in Chinese means a butterfly immortal. And it was a riff off of a Taoist notion of, of of, kind of rejecting man-made norms and having the ability to kind of romantically and idealistically uh, explore new things. Um, and that was the reputation that he wanted to cultivate both for himself and for his um, his brand. Uh, so he was a brilliant marketer. Um, and all of this was actually very, very important, he felt, uh, during this era of emerging capitalism in China. Like, how do you distinguish your good vis a vis all other goods? And then, one final note that I wanted to add is that this was a period, again, of nativist manufacturing. And so, what an authentic good was at that time was, uh, according to nativist entrepreneurs like Chen, uh were non were were chinese goods right these these were not enemy goods these were uh going to be made in china and indeed the brand actually uh the butterfly brand in chinese uh the literal chinese characters meant peerless and peerless meant peerless um, it was meant to kind of uh bring to mind to evoke the national products movement right so uh Chen's Toothpowder was peerless in terms of its foreign competitors. Uh, there was no other foreign competitor as good as um, uh, Chen's tooth powder, the Butterfly brand. Uh, and peerless itself actually is a pun because the Chinese characters for peerless in Mandarin is, produced, is, is pronounced one way, and it means peerless, but its homophone in the regional dialect in Shanghaiese uh, was butterfly. So, so he's quite punny um so so all of this is just to sort of say that he found multiple ways he was a brilliant marketer and he found multiple ways in order to authenticate um what was basically a mass manufactured product yeah
0: it's amazingly clever Uh, so this reminds me of a a really fascinating discussion that you have in the conclusion to the book about where you kind of bring the story into the present day and you sort of Describe these maker spaces, technology fairs, hubs that have become really popular in Western media in the last decade or so, localized in lots of parts of China, but especially, Mm -hmm. I guess, associated with Shenzhen in southeastern China. That's right. Where there's just all this kind of interesting tinkering and innovation and copying and counterfeiting that's going on around new technologies like cell phones and computers and other things like that. I'm wondering if if you want to kind of tell us a little bit about the comparison that you draw between what uh, Chen Dishan was up to in the early 20th century and this more recent um, history of the of Shanghai in, mm-hmm. in more, more recent Chinese history.
1: Yeah, so Shanzhai actually is a term that comes, it's a literary term originally, and it refers to these uh, kind of uh, strong, rogue strongholds um, in Chinese literature where the state couldn't penetrate, right? So there was sort of uh, extrajudicial activity taking place in these in these rogue uh, strongholds. And this literary term has been used uh, today in China to describe um, a new phenomenon uh, that uh, what is oftentimes found in cities like Shenzhen, a manufacturing hub just just near Hong Kong, where a lot of manufacturing uh, sort of uh, uh, takes place by kind of imitating um, for imported foreign technologies, right? So, so Shanghai today uh, might be casually uh, translated as a ripoff or a knockoff, um, and uh it's uh sort of uh, very prevalent in electronic production, but it, it can be found in it's also used to describe for example the ripoff prada bags that are found throughout China and throughout the world quite frankly um, and what these um, what shanghai incorporates is the idea that it's not just a ripoff but that the local imitators adjust uh, the production to uh, slightly alter. Uh, the good uh, in order to appeal to the to the domestic market. Right? So so it's very similar to what I saw Shenzhen doing already in the early 20th century. And uh, as you note, Shanghai uh, has gotten a lot of international attention. Uh, some those of those who are kind of very invested in um, kind of you know uh, upholding uh, kind of conventional notions of IPR criticized the Shanzhai production as just, you know, schlocky counterfeiting uh, and as an example of how China is not a- able to innovate. Um, and uh, yet again, as uh, China, another example of China sort of, you know, defying uh, the ethical norms of, of capitalism. Uh, that said more recently, there has been this more romantic uh, depiction of Shanzhai as a, uh, being quite similar to some of the uh, sort of makers movements and the innovation uh, that uh, you find in startup incubator type communities that uh, might be even associated, for example, with Silicon Valley. Right? And so some journalists have cast Shenzhen and the makers communities there as being kind of the new Silicon Valley. So you've got you've got two extremes, right? Um, And, uh, you know, I I don't want to ascribe to either per se. Uh, That's not really my goal. But rather, what I want to do is to illuminate that there's a longer history of uh, these forms of production. Um, And indeed, I would say it's probably not at all specific to China um, in the sense that innovation oftentimes uh, requires adaptation of uh, imitation and then adaptation and then improvement. Uh, what I do want to say historically is that this reputation of copying and then tinkering and then uh, possibly improving this kind of these forms of so called rogue manufacturing that's associated with Shanzhai in the 21st century uh, and that's associated with the vernacular industrialism of the early 20th century that I describe in my book, that they do become associated very much with Chinese manufacturing. So, that is a historical point that I want to make. Um, and, uh, you know, as we all, as we well know, China today is sort of seen as the quintessential counterfeiter, right? The quintessential uh, copycat. Um, and indeed, uh, engaging in trade, theft, and road manufacturing, <laughs> right? At the, at, at espionage. Of, yeah, espionage. <laughs> right? I mean, it's at the core of, you know, sort of US-China trade relations today, right? Some of the issues uh, that are um At uh, the heart of some of the tensions that are emerging globally today, Um, so you know certainly uh, you know my goal is not to either you know completely condemn copying and say China is is unique in this, nor do I want to romanticize uh, copying as sort of you know with a neoliberal narrative. I don't want to endorse the neoliberal narrative that might be lurking behind uh, some of the more romantic depictions of makers communities. Uh, And I will say it's not just neoliberal; the post-socialist Chinese state is also. Endorsing, uh, you know, this Shanghai activity as true mass manufacturing, mass creativity. Um, so I'm I'm certainly a, a very cognizant of both of the various ideological locations, um, but I am uh, interested again in identifying why uh, this kind of pra- why these practices have been seen as specifically Chinese, um, both from the early 20th century all the way until the 21st century. Two moments when China is really emerging as as um, active participants of global capitalism.
0: Yeah, specifically, seen as specifically Chinese. And then at the same time, I mean, what I like so much about this intervention is that there is this still really widespread notion of capitalism as, as, as a, a not just a space of innovation, but also a, a space of freedom, right? Where mm-hmm. kind of anything goes so long as it leads to innovative new products. Mm-hmm. And what this kind of emphasis on copying and restrictions on copying, right? Intellectual property law and other kind of trade regimes shows is that in fact, it's often exactly the opposite, right? That capitalism is, a is you know, global capitalism is a heavily regulated space. And then when there's a, a player who seemed to be violating some of those, what you just called ethical norms of capitalism, uh, the World Trade Organization com- can come down on them with quite a heavy hammer. So anyway, I think maybe if you, if we wanted to use this, Opportunity, if you wanted to tell us a little, I know your next project is interested in looking at intellectual property law and how it intersects with uh, issues of global capitalism, uh, knowledge transfer, knowledge circulation. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about where your thinking is headed in the future around some of these issues and what you're thinking about doing next?
1: Yeah, great. So, yeah, my next book uh, is uh, cur- tentatively titled uh, Making the Chinese Copycat. Uh, and so I'll be moving from this kind of global microhistory, where I focus on an individual, to a uh, larger, more global uh, study of um, sort of international uh, disputes over Chinese copying or alleged Chinese copying. So uh, some of the stuff you've already seen when we co-edited the Osiris volume on science and capitalism, where I look at particular trademark uh, infringement cases. Um, where, uh, you know, uh, England um, in particular comes down against China in the early 20th century and accuses Chinese copycats in particular of uh, ripping off um, its trademarks of certain pharmaceutical goods. And I hope to expand that analysis uh, into uh, the, over the, you know, sort of not just the early 20th century, but into the uh, post-49 period as well. Uh, But the themes that I'm interested in are already emerging in, this uh, Vernacular Industrialism in China book, uh, which is exactly as you say, it's sort of looking at how um, capitalism and science, right, are predicated uh, ideologically on freedom of movement, on the circulation of ideas, uh, a free marketplace uh, of goods and ideas. Uh, And I want to kind of challenge that conceit and look at actual structures of obstruction uh, even as uh, goods and ideas circulate, um, you know, capitalist players are very invested in creating um, institutional obstruction to the circulation of uh, brand names, of knowledge, of, uh, of uh, technologies. And um, so, so industrial property rights is uh, arguably a means by which, um, um, you know, uh, Various uh, transnational corporations and and governments were very invested in kind of making sure that they would claim exclusive uh, ownership over uh, whether it's a recipe, a formula, a trademark, or an invention. Um, And that obstructs the circulation of uh, knowledge about how to produce and manufacture things, how science might circulate, um, and how goods might circulate. So so that's sort of the larger conceptual concern that I'm very interested in looking at. And uh, I think coincides with some of the uh, interests that you have as well, given your interest in the history of capitalism. But also thinking uh, beyond this notion of circulation, which has been a very, very powerful trope both in the history of science and increasingly in the history of capitalism, Um, and uh, which is a natural, natural uh, sort of it was a positive step in so far as it was an attempt to kind of think about. Um, how science was made um, in global, in these global exchanges, um, whether it was in uh, imperialist exchanges or in sort of uh, uh, you know, with functionaries who are go-betweens who are translators who would function to uh, exchange uh, knowledge that was, uh, and ways of knowing the natural world that then became very, very important to the making of modern science. Uh, but um you know, I think the trope of circulation became a little bit too fluid and it didn't appreciate um, some of the obstacles and, um, and indeed the politics invested in both promoting uh, the conceit of free circulation with, uh, in contrast to the actuality where there was a lot of ownership over ideas.
0: Yeah. I mean, I often feel like this trope of circulation, it almost like buys into the hype of capitalism, right? Yeah. That It's, it's, it's kind of uh, the, the dream of the capitalist. Uh, but in fact, the reality, as you just said, is, is to build walls absolutely everywhere that the eye can see, because that's where profits are made, is by arresting movement and by arresting the circulation of knowledge.
1: And, exactly, uh, on, exactly. Else. And, and so, so another central theme that I'm very interested in is precisely, right, I mean, so ownership over things, right, the ability yeah. to uh, make a claim and translate mm-hmm. that claim That that, that ability to own something and then translate that into profit is actually a central component of capitalism. So that's another sort of major theme. That'll be yeah.
0: And I have to say, I mean, I'm always amazed that like, you know, if you read Marx, like the first mm-hmm. chapter of Capital is about the circulation of the commodity, but then the rest of the book is about accumulation. So exactly. it's always funny to me that we exactly. kind of forget yeah. the rest of the right, story. The
1: accumu- <laughs> right. The accumulation part. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's more circulation, I think. But I think there's a lot of um, movement away or be, sort of conceptual movement beyond uh, sort of trying to move beyond circulation. Yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, with that, let me just thank you, Eugenia, for joining us and discussing this absolutely fascinating book that you've written.
1: Thank you so much for having me.